I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. Hello and welcome back to For Your Ears Only, the Optimism Vaccine Premier James Bond podcast in which I, Jake Tropila, recap all of the Bond films up until the release of No Time to Die with my co-host Jack Eason. Jack, how are you doing this evening? I am doing pretty good, Jake. Excellent. Good to hear. Good to hear. Um, I'm very excited for this episode for a number of reasons. Uh, One, we've got a film I've been looking forward to getting to uh, for a while. But uh, more importantly, we have a guest joining us. Uh, You may recall him from the Moonraker episode and also just the uh, general host of all of our regular OpVac casts. Uh, Please uh, give a warm welcome to Mr. Steve Cuff. Oh, gentlemen, it's it's great to be here. So... Normally, I spend my time and all of the Optimism Vaccine riches that I rake in just snorting cocaine, driving around in sports cars, and and generally ignoring the content that we put out. But when I heard that because you're going through the James Bond films chronologically, you're going to get to the best James Bond film, I had to jump in. This is important for me to be here. That's right. Well, we've covered everything now. It's the best James Bond. All right. Tune in next month. (laughs) that's right yeah well uh i it's funny you mentioned that uh it would take a while to get to the best one because i got a facebook uh, memory notification yesterday uh we released the first episode on dr no two years ago yesterday at the time of this recording so uh i know what are we what are we doing with our lives what are we doing indeed well we're going to talk about The Living Daylights. Uh, this is a very exciting time uh, for uh, if you're a Bond fan, I believe. Uh, Living Daylights, 1987. Uh, Roger Moore is out. He had his, uh, his final hurrah with a view to a kill. And uh, we are now introducing ourselves to the world of Timothy Dalton's Bond. Um, now, Jack, uh, you mentioned off mic, or maybe in a few previous episodes, that uh, this is a Bond film that uh, was very big in your youth. D- uh, do you recall that being the case? Oh yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Dalton era was Dalton era was my my favorite. They were kind of on TV routinely, but also they were just that little bit racier, edgier. They had that feeling of like, mm, am I supposed to be able to watch this? You know, which is really valuable as a kid. So, um, yeah, I fondly recall this, and I'm actually, you know, as we'll get into, I'm, right. I'm pretty pleased. This, this holds up pretty well. This was, this was a good time. Yeah, I've always, uh, I came into being a Dalton fan very late, um, so, so I just, uh, I watched his first, his two films, he only did two films, unfortunately. I watched them back to back, and I was just immediately smitten with the man. I think uh, the hard edge that he brings to the franchise, uh, his steely concentration, his damn gorgeous blue eyes green uh, eyes come green. on we discussed this. is it We've green already... because i googled it and it said blue so uh They're but ma- green eyes i'm, ma- I'm you're certain all right green green eyes answers it is. on a postcard listeners what color are timothy dalton's eyes i know we did a lot of research but uh We've already got controversy. Steve, do yes, you remember? Right. Steve, do you, um, can you weigh in on the eyes? They're, they're piercing and beautiful, and it's kind of hard to describe the color when I just found myself falling into them. So Exactly. Uh, the classic. You just get lost in those things. But so, yeah. Timothy, if, if you're out there listening, hit us up. Yeah, you're a beautiful <laughs> boy. Uh, he is. And, so, and the sexiest Mr. Darcy of all time. 
Oh yeah, there you go. Separate of this. That's right. Yeah, second place is a uh, Ted McGinley. Um, so, Steve, you've mentioned that uh, this is your favorite James Bond film. Uh, any particular reason why? Before we get into it, absolutely. So there's there's a couple different layers to this. One, like Jack, this was an important part of my my childhood. Like I wasn't that familiar with a lot of the the James Bond back catalog, but I got really into GoldenEye, the Nintendo 64 game. And that was right when Pierce Brosnan, obviously, started do, doing the Bond movies. And Pierce right. Brosnan Bond movies, they don't do much for me. Um, and at the time, none of the TV stations had the rights to Pierce Brosnan James Bond movies. So they played a lot of Timothy Dalton. So I've seen, I, I used to watch this one on TV all the time. And, and kind of like with Jack, I'm like, man, this is just like a – explodey action movie that's a little bit racy and a little bit edgy and when you're 10 years old you're like fuck yeah this is my shit so i really enjoyed it and then also because i'm a contrarian motherfucker uh, if james bond ever came up i would always say that living daylights is my favorite james bond movie and people are like wow what about sean connery and blah, 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 blah. so it's 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 a really good movie to to kind of back to make obsessive nerds upset yeah, any anytime I want to kind of gauge somebody's uh, James Bond fandom, and I don't even know if this is a good thing to do, I always look at their placement of the Dalton films um, because if if they place them very low, uh, quite frankly, I just don't think you're a very interesting person, and I don't want to talk to you. But yeah, um, you anybody, anybody who uh, holds Dalton in high regard is okay in my book. And and for me, like I mentioned, I came into him kind of late. I I kind of had like as just as a young movie fan had sort of written off Dalton like oh he was no good he only did two films without having actually actually ever watched them but when I finally did sit down to watch them I was uh, kind of amazed at, at just how incredible like his his two film run of the series is it's he really just got in and got out and perfected his vision of Bond and and I really I really uh really admire that I I really get sad after every time I watch them I Finish the License to Kill, which is the second one we'll be doing later. But uh, I get sad at the end of every film. I wish he had done a third one. So, uh, Timothy Dalton, uh, I mean, without further ado, I say uh, we get into the film, gentlemen. What do you think? Let's do it. All right. So, uh, year is 1987. This is director John Glenn's uh, fourth film, um, four out of five. Uh, We open with a pre-title sequence set over the Rock of Gibraltar. And uh, I just got to say, I really love this uh, pre-title sequence. It kind of works as its own mini-movie. Um, we established that there's uh, double, O's, double O's up in training. Uh, they're in M's office, which is revealed to be in the back of a plane. And I don't know why M would have his office so close to the uh, the jump-out point, I guess you would say, and all of his papers there's, are flying around. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, there's a good gag where his papers are flying around. And it's like, honestly, you're underselling this. If this is in a plane and the back just opened, like, more papers are going to fly around. It looks like a gentle office breeze just rustled <laughs> things. Yeah. It would be chaotic. Um, so the double O's, there's three of them. They land on the Rock of Gibraltar. Their mission is to infiltrate it. Uh, and this is sort of like, a, I guess this is a joint training mission because all the guards down below are armed with uh, paintball guns um so we see each of the double o's land the first guy who lands uh he's hit with the paintballs like immediately and he's he's tagged as out um and then there's the second guy who is uh climbing up the face of a rock uh he's encounters an assassin who cuts uh his cord not before sending down a toe tag that says uh schmiert spionum 
Um, and then when his line is cut, he lets out a horrible screen. Uh, cut to the second greatest James Bond introduction in the history of the franchise. Uh, Jack, what do you think of uh, Mr. Dalton's close-up here? Oh, it's. I mean, it's stunning, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I just feel like um, you just mentioned that the first 00 guy got shot immediately as soon as he landed. And I just think that it's disgraceful that MI6 would let someone that incompetent be allowed to just go around killing people. Right. Um, that's terrible. He should have it revoked. He should be like a license to mildly chide or something, <laughs> you know, licensed injure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, this this is pretty good. I was a little confused about the geography in this sequence, I gotta admit, because it feels like Bond is everywhere at once. It's like the guy, he like... He sees him almost from parallel, and then the guy gets his rope cut, and he falls a load, and then Bond, like, runs up, and he's right there as well. And it's like, did he just descend 100 feet in, like, a matter of seconds? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, no, it's um, it's pretty good. Um, And, of course, we have the... the there's... I mean, it doesn't really read now so much, but there was a little bit of... I, I The whole sequence seems planned to, like, who is James Bond? You know, we, we, we learn, obviously, when the first two die that probably the last guy is 007. Yeah. Um, but kind of yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's a really nice um, pre-credit sequence. It's it's great because that that just that close-up is you immediately go okay, that's James Bond. I'm in this, and it, Dalton just sells it with such such pure serious conviction uh, that I find immensely satisfying. Um, so then the training mission sort of becomes uh, a, a, not an actual training mission, but it's a real mission to get the bad guy. Uh, we get into a uh, car chase. Bond is on the roof of a of a jeep, which is filled with explosives in the back. He starts cutting through the top and fighting the guy while he's driving the vehicle. Uh, they're almost running over tourists. Apparently, the training site was uh, close to a tourist attraction that's happening nearby. That's um, the army base gift shop, probably. Exa- Everyone just showing up there. Yeah, all the Americans come down to visit. Um, but, uh, yeah, this is really very solid action, and uh, Dalton's doing much of his own stunts. Um, Steve, what are some of your thoughts on the, uh, the the pre-title sequence? I absolutely love it. Uh, and, and this is one of the, the main reasons why this is my favorite Bond film. And, yeah. and that's because, it, you know, if you look at The Living Daylights, if you were to ask someone, give me a concise summary of the story behind Living Daylights, ah! they would be like, uh, I, I, there's a Russian and then Mujahideen and then it's it's impossible, okay? But it, this movie doesn't give a fuck, all right? And and it's directed by John Glenn, if I'm not mistaken. Is that That's right? right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And John Glenn's whole thing is, like, he was basically just a nobody. Like, he was, like, a second unit director, I think, like, most of his life. And then he just got handed a bunch of Bond films. And there's a very workmanlike structure to this where it's like, yeah, there's a story, but also the story doesn't matter as much because it's just quick paced action and let's not stop and think about this shit too much. And that is definitely the theme of this cold open. You know, it's, it's this great action sequence, but it's sort of, it's shot in this almost slapdash workmanlike way that it makes it feel like an eighties action film. Right. It's just like, just a cheapy, like a Canon film almost. And I love that about it. You know, this is, it's got it's got commando vibes underneath it, which that's, I really that, respect. That is, that very is probably say, the yeah. Fir- yeah, the probably the first Bond movie you could ever say that about. I think. Oh yeah. Well, may- maybe almost uh, Never Say Never again, just because they have the sweaty South American jungle vibe going on. But yeah, no, I think Dalton definitely sells the he sells the action hero pretty pretty solidly from from the get go here. Yeah. And um, my favorite part about the pre credit sequence uh, as um. 
the imposter that's all he's credited as he doesn't get a name the guy he's trying to break in played by an actor right. called carl rigg i was reading about this and apparently he got the role at the last minute it was originally going to be played by a stuntman but they decided they needed you know there was enough face time that they wanted an actual actor and uh, he was at home babysitting his kid at the time not babysitting he was a father uh, looking after his own <laughs> child um, and he uh, got the call about this and he pretty much just like dropped his kid off with a neighbor left a note for his wife because she wasn't home and just took a plane to gibraltar Which so, brb and, and going to gibraltar rock and roll it's it's so like it's so in step with just how this movie feels and, and how it's directed i i kept thinking about the um the, the the skydiving sequence oh yeah and how i mean there's there's nothing like functionally wrong with it but like clearly it was just like you strapped a backpack out of cameraman you're like just just shoot some shit man yeah <laughs> you know and, and then well, thinking about that compared to the new the newest mission impossible movie where i had yeah. you know oh the cameraman he trained blah 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 we did 50 jumps and he did all this stuff and this one was clear like you just threw a guy out of the plane and it was just like just shoot whatever you can get <laughs> exactly i yeah. mean yeah i'm i've got to say um i had the same feeling about it and to me it was honestly because I was like the new Mission Impossible, that skydive thing was fine. I didn't take my breath away or anything. I'm still looking at this going functionally. This is every like works every bit as well for me as anything done in Mission Impossible, to be honest. So oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it probably uh, took like maybe two takes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, if you recall in the Moonraker ep, uh, they had 80 skydives just to film that opening sequence. So they would jump out, 60 seconds of filming guys fighting midair. They would land, parachute down to safely, go back up in the plane, do it 79 more times. So uh, take that, Tom Cruise. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, what I also love about this uh, opening title sequence and really just is more about how Dalton plays Bond because Dalton kind of returned to the Fleming well of who the character is. He's a very dark and like a very, very almost sort of bitter and vicious person. Um, he doesn't say a single word in this opening uh, training sequence until he lands on the boat after defeating the imposter, um, which I think is great. And I love the, uh, the the plant and payoff of the parachute because he lands on the island. He packages up his parachute in the backpack. He fights the guy. The fight eventually takes them careening over a cliff with explosives boxes on fire in the back of the truck. Uh, Bond is able to escape. By just what does he do? He pulls out the parachute. So it's a very nice setup that pays off in this own little six minute sequence. It's true. James Bond is a sort of man who always feels like he might be hurtling through the air yeah. within the next 10 minutes. So he's preparing. He's never leaving the parachute behind. Indeed. Yeah. And so, I, I do I do really like, like you mentioned, how this establishes who Timothy Dalton is as James Bond because right. it's not it's not quippy it's not you know just kind of cornball and and there's a place for that and I enjoy those Bond movies don't oh, get yeah. me wrong but uh, you know and I, I think it's it's interesting watching this now because I know like some people criticize the the Daniel Craig James Bond portrayal they're like oh he's too cold and he's not sexy enough he's not horny we need a horny James Bond doing one-liners all the time it's like no you don't need that I mean that can work for certain people but I think Timothy Dalton really established the I'm not super horny and also I don't have to make like a one-liner joke every three seconds Oh, yeah, it's true. and, and li The License to Kill, just to jump ahead of film, that's sort of like a precursor for just a crazy 
90 minute revenge movie starring James Bond. And, and that's that Timothy Dalton basically walked. So uh, Daniel Craig could run. Um, but uh, yeah, he's for sure. He really set the bar high and nobody loved him for it then, which is sad. Yeah. That this, I will say though, I do think like, and it is something we'll, we'll talk about a little more as throughout the movie. I do. There's still these weird touches of comedy, which they work in the opening credit sequence, but there is kind of a schizophrenia to this for me a little bit. Cause like in the opening chase before the credit, you know, in the pre-credit sequence, there are all the reaction shots of the monkeys. And yeah, I was kind of like, jump scare is so good. <laughs> and it's like, I'm enjoying this, but also it's a weird, cause, cause, Bond is very intense looking, but there's also monkeys covering their eyes because they don't yeah. like the car crashes, you know. And then later on, in a little bit later on in the movie, they have uh, uh, the they go to there's a high level secret meeting, and outside of it there is a rake radar, and it's a rotating <laughs> rake head. The rake and like the, yeah, and it's the most ridiculous thing. Like that, why would you make it look like a rake? It spins around. Everyone's gonna know that's not a real thing. But anyway, yeah. it's there's there's still these weird visual gags throughout the movie, which are kind of amusing because they're like dad joke personified. Like they're oh, just yeah. incredibly. But yeah. at but then they they counterpoint a James Bond who is absolutely leaner and meaner. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's there's a strange. I feel like the 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 franchise is branching out here and i think i'm with jake on this is the kind of dalton walk so craig could run there there is this kind of new ground being struck here this is not a roger moore film but some little bits of the roger moore era are kind of sliding around in there yeah there's a there's i don't a... even remember that much visual humor in like the connery era even i mean like i don't remember monkeys and like animal reaction shots so much in those movies even. oh yeah well and the monkeys I... are great too because I, I don't yeah. even know if these are working monkeys or if they're just like ah, sh- there's monkeys around here somebody get some footage of this it just it just Sucks. has a real like as as lean and independent feeling as a james bond film can be even though these are like major studio productions it, <laughs> it just it just feels like just really like vigilante shooting like just let's get what we can get we'll put it together which right. i love i absolutely love it yeah so bond lands on the boat uh, after killing the imposter there's a uh, a babe in a bikini on the phone she's got a giant mobile 80s phone complaining about how there are no real men in her life uh oh, in comes bond uh, he does a very cool like backflip over the tarmac of her uh boat takes the phone uh she asks who he is and then he delivers the line bond james bond but like dalton sort of underplays it in a way where he's not like a movie star saying a line he's just he's he's all business he's just like that's who i am you know i'm i'm on a mission i can't talk now uh but uh, you know she offers a glass of champagne and uh he delays his uh, report into mi6 uh, by another hour uh this is kind of a little little you know softer side of uh, timothy dalton after having just uh, brutally murdered a man midair with some explosives but, I do uh, want to clarify, sure. um, for for the purposes of counting Mr. Bond's sexual partners, I'm counting that. Definitely a- abso- hour absolutely. delay, no question, once, maybe even two, three times. Who yeah. knows? Bond is efficient. Well, and this is also a sort of a turning point just in the series, is that Bond starts to be a little more monogamous because of the AIDS scare of the 80s really uh i guess got to the producer so they decided okay well bond will only have one girl and after... they didn't admit that for like another 10 years though. yeah yeah that it was like it was only like 2007 or something timothy dalton was like fine like yeah yeah we made bond less promiscuous because of aids which is honestly who's watching a bond movie and thinking about aids <laughs> I, like, well, I, just... I, I mean to be fair if if we were in like modern 
contemporary film criticism culture, people would be like, what does the new James Bond film have to say about AIDS? But thankfully, this, that's, this is we're not true. Doing yeah, this this movie, and we're we're gonna get to some very dicey political things later on in this film. But as far as I'm concerned, it's only 1987. Um, all right, so uh, after uh, after very successful pre-opening title sequence, we hear the uh, song, and it goes a little something like this. Steve, what are you? What are your thoughts on uh, the Living Daylights by Aha? Oh, absolute fucking banger! Let me tell you, people Hell are yeah. like, "Oh, Aha was a one-hit wonder." No, 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 no! You are downplaying the pop brilliance of Aha, and just to do, you know, a, a one-off mercenary gig for the James Bond soundtrack, and to knock it out of the park completely. This is one of my favorite James Bond themes, and it fits. And it's super 80s, but at the same time, it still feels like a classic James Bond theme. And th- yeah. this has got to be one of the best. Yeah, absolutely. Jack, any uh, any thoughts you'd like to add? Yeah, no. So- um, Duran Duran is a... You don't want to follow that act, but someone had to. And I think AHA yeah. were uh, clearly picked for the for the same reason they were very popular. There was the kind of, kind of a trendiness, which the Bond themes had previously kind of... Uh, kind of not really played with so they they kind of saw success i mean a view to a kill was successful but i think the theme tune was probably by far and away the most successful element of the whole film so they were obviously trying to strike gold twice and um i was surprised to learn because i hadn't really thought about it but this is apparently the only bond theme that is not sung by a british or an american person Hmm. Uh aha of course being norwegian but yeah just just around it's still in english whatever you know but but just a weird thing of how you know they need to get into like a a a throat yodeler or something in from one of them really you know throw the throw the net out get peter gabriel to get one of his friends on the phone you know some real weird world music kind of thing maybe uh uh, maybe yodeling kid can do no time to die next april (laughs) Well, and, and I will say too, you know, there's there's a limited uh, number of aha uh, moments in, yeah. in cinema, but true. the only two I can think of is this song, which is an absolute banger, and the comic book 
kill in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, The Dream Child, ah, which is the yes. only part of that movie that I really enjoy. Uh, you are, yeah. of so, course, forgetting. Don't, don't they, doesn't AHA feature prominently in Better Off Dead, the John Cusack oh, movie that yeah. John Cusack hates? Yeah. So that, that would be number three, but you're you're correct. It's not exactly a, a rich uh, vein to to kind of did dive into here which is which is uh, that's the failure of of late 80s cinema really because anytime you bring aha and it elevates your movie <laughs> yeah i agree i love this song with a fiery passion i you know not quite as good as uh, a view to a kill but i mean then again what is it's so damn good in its own right and i love i love just the like the warm vibrato feeling that the singer's voice uh gives as he sings the chorus I it's just a real it's a real banger you get you nailed which, it which makes it more confusing that this is the first Bond movie that doesn't close with the main theme they gave two songs yeah. to the pretenders who are with no disrespect to the pretenders not aha and not <laughs> right. a, not as popular as they were in the late 80s yeah so that's, that's, there's still this so kind weird. of dad vibe Who's Still going this kind to of like for the pretenders this late into the <laughs> 1980s. That would be like if if the new James Bond movie came out and they're like, and Green Day has done two songs. To the glo- <laughs> no, don't fucking. No, do that. I would. I wouldn't write that off though. I, I feel like that's a very a very standard Bond oh, yeah, canon. Of, you know, like the broccoli. What is the average age of the broccolis at this point? I don't even know. Uh, I don't know. So yeah, but, Cubby's so, on his way out. You know, because I, I feel like they probably were like, oh, this this view to a kill song the kids seem to like that we'll get another one like that but we'll also get some you know music real music music we like you know it's like no. <laughs> like still they still have still this they could have had two aha songs why not apparently they approached the pet shop boys for this um at ah. one point and the pet shop boys turned it down because they wanted to score the whole movie they didn't want to just do a theme tune okay, but i'm trying to awesome. imagine yeah i'm trying <laughs> yeah. to imagine what that would have been and i'm kind of i mean we really like this movie but this movie does not have any pet shop boys in no, it so no. and, and actually that would have been better probably just because of the oh, extreme wow. confusion of american audiences who are just like what <laughs> pet shop boys i don't know what this is this is yeah, it's they were really on a on a very much of a love ballad kick throughout the late seventies and early eighties as far as Bond themes go because you got Sheena Easton, you got Rita Coolidge, you got Carly Simon, and then yeah, Duran Duran basically kicked the doors down for some good old eighties rock and God, how I wish I want a Pet Shop Boys uh, theme or even a Sparks theme would be amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, let but, Sparks score an entire James Bond movie. That'd be good. I want. I want. That, yeah. Sparks and Danny Elfman collaborating on a James Bond movie <laughs> is my ultimate eighties. Ah, uh, be crazy. Um, uh, the things that cannot be. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, Jack, you mentioned this was a Norwegian singer, uh, Morten Harkett, of course. And Aha's from Norway. This song reached uh, number one on the Norway charts. Uh, oh, there you go. Highest it reached elsewhere was number five on the UK chart. Uh, not bad. Uh, View to a Kill was number one, of course. But again, that song's pretty damn impeach- unimpeachable. Um, let me ask, did you guys notice in the opening credits that when AHA is credited for the theme song, uh, the font of the band is in their own custom font, and it's not like the rest of the font in the opening credits? I didn't notice I that. I did not notice that. That's a fun Easter egg. Thank you. Yeah, something to notice. It's in the band's actual font. and A, a real aha moment. Ah, yeah. <laughs> I'll um, show myself out. And then, <laughs> No, no, please stay. You're welcome here. Um, then uh, also, uh, I want to go into... This is a perfect opportunity to talk about the music because I think sort of the unsung hero in the last 15 of the EON Bond films we've done is 
John Barry and his music scores. Uh, I think this is the absolute best score in the entire franchise, uh, hands down. And it's not just because of my intense love for this movie, but it's because uh, it's the way that John Barry incorporates the uh, the theme from uh, The Living Daylights, as well as the Pretenders theme songs. Sort of, he turns them into these instrumental songs throughout that score of the movie. Um, what do you guys think of this soundtrack? Isn't isn't this his last movie? It is. It's he, l- it is. So, yeah, you went, and I, I would agree with you, Um. I don't know about the best because I just I I don't have the ear to like I'd have to go back and revisit more and more of them. But um, definitely this one is very noticeable and it also has more of an '80s inflection. There's a little bit more drum mm-hmm. work coming in. Yeah, but yeah, no. Um, definitely I I would think this is is more memorable. I actually noticed it. I'm terrible with film music generally speaking, so I did notice it. So yeah, he's doing something. Yeah, it's great. He even uh, John Barry has a cameo. He's the conductor at the orchestra at the very end of the film, um which is a, I think is a nice not you know not really a nice coincidence that this happens to be his last film, which is sad to say, but uh I think it's cool that they just happen to pay him tribute like that. Um so yeah, other other soundtracks I would just recommend. Um, the On Her Majesty's Secret Service one is good. You Only Live Twice is good, and Goldfinger is good. But I think this one is really the best all around. Um, all right. Uh, well, uh, pre-title sequence done. Czechoslovakia. To Czechoslovakia we go. Uh, speaking of operas or concerts, rather, we are at another concert. Bond is meeting uh, a head of section in uh, is it section in Prague? Uh, Saunders. Oh no, he's the head of section in Vienna. Uh, he's part of MI6. His name is Saunders. He's a very stuffy, by-the-book individual, and he's Bond is meeting him there for a mission. Um, and this really sets up most of the film. Uh, so what we have here, and I, I have the plot of this movie sort of figured out. I think I can... Uh, <laughs> I think I can sort of recount it's it It's important later. one of us do, does. Yeah. That's, that's basically your whole function is yeah. to try and keep us on track. Yeah. So basically, Bond is there to assist with the... Um, uh, what is the, the defection of a KGB general named Koskov. Uh, he's there at the concert, and then he's, his plan is to escape out the window of the bathroom, run across the street. Bond is to protect him from any enemy sniper fire that he could draw. And this is actually where uh, the short story, The Living Daylights by Ian Fleming, is actually really only just this sniper mission. It's Bond out to take down a sniper. Bond recognizes that the sniper is an inexperienced woman, uh, so he just wounds her and then says the iconic line of the movie, which we'll get to. Um, but uh, I really love this little espionage sequence. And I think uh, if you look back at all the the films, this is probably the best uh, spy film since uh, From Russia With Love. Like there's actual yeah. covert spy work going on, which I can't recall the last time we've seen anything genuinely it, like that. D- didn't From Russia With Love has a sniper sequence too? Uh, That's right. With with Karen Bay, they assassinate the guy sneaking yeah. out of the billboard. So yeah. so there's a real there's a real throwback here. Yeah. Um, and and definitely I agree. This this film has, despite the overall plot kind of looping kind of wild at a certain point, there are definitely some nice little touches here, and and it is really it's a series of set pieces. Yeah. Um, that eventually just turns into blowing up Afghanistan, which, you know, is kind of how the real world seems to have wrote itself <laughs> into two. So, um, yeah. yeah, cool. Good stuff. Yeah, well, uh, we, we get to... So Bond takes a point on the uh, across the street. He does this really cool thing with his tuxedo where he, like, folds the lapel over and it turns into, like, a stealth Nehru jacket, um, which is pretty awesome. And then he picks up the largest 
craziest fucking sniper rifle I've ever seen in any movies. Which which is apparently a real gun. It's apparently a real gun. Research this. It it looks like the ones that, um, what's his face, the the bad guy from uh, RoboCop makes and they bring to the construction yard to try to beat RoboCop with. It's funny that in in this film later on, one of the bad guys has like fictitious high-tech weaponry and honestly none of it's as outlandish as a real sniper rifle they found. (laughs) Yeah. Steve, do you have any uh, thoughts on this giant sniper rifle? (laughs) No, I I, I was thinking as I was watching it, I was just like, I don't know a lot about guns, but this seems excessively large. And then I was just thinking like, if I had to fire this gun, I would definitely miss. I I probably would have missed by at least 50 feet because it would have just knocked me on my ass. I don't. Yeah. It is. It's a bit strange. It's a ginormous sniper rifle for what appears to be they. They seem to be across the road. I know, they're like they're like fifty <laughs> feet away, and they're like, okay, we need we need a, a sniper rifle that can definitely like you, you, the scope goes for three miles. This is yeah. like American sniper, but like the local version, just very very compact. The the only thing I would say is that honestly, Russia has a a great history of actual female snipers who killed an awful lot of Nazis, and it's a shame that in this film they had to have like an inexperienced one, and it turns out. Yeah. trap uh yeah. so you know uh, we still need a bond movie with you know a full-on you know crazy like preferably like an 80 year old grandma russian sniper <laughs> oh well someone hire there, me i will like this movie there's a grandma with a machine gun and goldfinger uh lest we forget um but uh, but uh but yeah so uh and this is also really cool because bond notices in the uh, orchestra there's a lovely blonde woman playing the cello who happens to be the uh, enemy sniper he has to take down in this operation. Uh, and she is uh, our one and only Bond girl, Cara Malovi, played by Mariam Diabo, who you might best know uh, as the au pair from Extro. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, you, might, you might best know her best from Extro. No one knows anything from Extro. Yeah. <laughs> be- no, not every- if you are a, a person who is either on or regularly listens to anything related to Optimism Vaccine. Those are the only people that have seen Extro. <laughs> at this point, we're only doing the podcast for our limited fans, but hey, we love you and we see you. Um, I mean, guy, yeah, it's it's true. Extra, I, I, in reading about this, I thought Extra was officially a video nasty, but apparently never made the official list, which is really hmm. funny because I'm pretty sure the owned- it. Well, well, she, well, I mean, to be fair, I think a couple of them fell under that. But it's funny because I think the only reason I ever did watch Extra was because I thought it was a video nasty. So they fooled me twice there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, no, that's so 100% I feel why I, I saw Extra for the first time is because I, I think when I was like 19, I just spent a lot of time like Googling like, movies that are fucked up and like that one happened to <laughs> and that movie is fucked up oh yeah don't violence. get us wrong it's just a very very weird film yeah. um <laughs> just makes yeah. you uncomfortable exactly yeah. we're talking bond but seriously after this crank up either the living daylights or extra yeah do both give yourself a Miriam diabo double feature um yeah, yeah so Bond recognizes that the sniper is very inexperienced so he only uh shoots the gun out of her hand to wound her uh, Saunders is pissed that Bond misses deliberately. Um, they smuggle Koskov uh, over to a... Uh, uh, I don't even know what you would call this facility, but basically they pump natural gas into uh, Vienna from Czechoslovakia using a gas pipeline. They have a designed uh, plug that can fit a man so that they can uh, covertly transport people across the border and so Koskov can ef- efficiently defect. Um, I like this, set- this section because it all yeah. depends on a, a woman... Um, 
who let me see I, i've got the name of the actress on this one uh this is uh julie t wallace playing rosico miklos that's right who, uh is his aide who essentially her whole job is to distract the man of the pipeline. I don't even know why they need to distract him, honestly, because the guy's getting shot down a pipeline. Like, they can't stop him once he's gone. Yeah, but Um, but they wanted to... If they did launch it, she says that the control panel will light up like a Christmas tree, so certainly the guy will investigate it, so the... The idea They'll is just investi- to yeah. throw them off They'll the scent. investigate it, but like, can they ever find out what it was? I don't know. But anyway, like, because the alternative is they distract him by her going in there and you know opening up her, her jumpsuit her and and letting making him basically motorboat her for a while yeah. and then she and then and when once the distraction is done she just walks in and like what kind of a girl do you think i am at least and it's like how many times is that gonna work like is that less suspicious than the the, the thing lighting up for a bit like, well, i feel yeah. like a, a, an electronics error would be at least as you know normal as like this lady just seems crazy <laughs> Yeah, I think she's just trying to prevent an investigation from being opened. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I think there's a there's a different department that would open an investigation after <laughs> that kind of a workplace incident. But, oh right, yeah, weird, weird, weird system. Not complaining. Another another nod to comedy here. Um, yeah, and and a, and a rare female accomplice to uh, James Bond. So yeah, we'll take it. She's yeah, she's fun. She's game. Um, yeah, they get uh, they get Koskov across the border, um, and then he's then taken away to uh, England in a Harrier jet, uh, which is one of the earliest appearances of a Harrier jet in a film, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, then we cut to uh, I believe we're at the safe house is the next sequence, if I'm not mistaken. With the rake dar, yes, that's right. I yeah, believe so. Yeah, yeah, outside all the the wonderful security measures they have. Um, in this country state that they just uh, which has the head of mi6 a recently defected russian general mm-hmm. the ministry of defense or the minister of defense right and then they just let a milkman come in like they can't even organize like a milk delivery within <laughs> they just have to have a dude show up on a float which who of like course a turns very out- british thing by the way like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah well so they we do they do comment they have a they do comment they do have a regular milkman who comes by so uh um, but that's uh, but, but but they pat him down outside the milk float and then he gets on the milk float and it's like you could yeah. put a bomb on that did you no search the milk float it. yeah Good yeah point. it's true it's but anyhow uh, my thing but this turns out of course to be necros oh yes which is, I, in the realm of henchmen called? yeah in the realm of henchmen in the bond films i mean you have you basically have your your three iconic ones i would say are jaws odd job and knickknack at least they have all some sort of visual distinction um, or you know some trait that people recognize, or the they're, they're the most popular ones. I think Necros uh, gives them all a run for their money as being one of the best henchmen in the he's, series. He's a throwback again to from Russia with Love. That's to, right. To Red, Red like he's, he's the yeah he's the blonde, just lethally efficient 007 equivalent oh, on yeah. the the Russian side. This, so yeah, he's yeah. great. He's great because like the entire time I'm thinking like, oh man, after Rocky Four, I guess you couldn't get Dolph Lundgren. So you got dollar mm-hmm. store Dolph Lundgren. Like, that was well, my first. Well, this is, yeah, Dolph. ironically, they got Dolph Lundgren they, for, yeah. his, for the last film. <laughs> Dolph so, Lundgren's in A View to a Kill them. for about 25 seconds. Um, <laughs> that that it, was, we finally got him. <laughs> yeah, that was his first role, believe it or not. But yeah, the Necros is broke. fantastic. He's oh, great heavy, great heavy. Le- lethal. He's, he's tough. He's a master of uh, disguise. Um, he, yeah, he rolls up to, uh, the MI6 safe house. He's got explosive milk bottles, which he yeah. just throws w- without any care in the world. He's, 
Yeah, he's a master of disguise as much as you can be when you have, like, slick black or slicked back platinum blonde hair. <laughs> yeah. And you don't look like anyone else there. But, he, yeah, he I like, I like, like the, like... man to me. I, yeah, I like the touch of him having, like, the, the milk car... Uh, the milkman delivery uniform, whatever the hell that is, and he changes into a paramedic or whatever yeah. instantly by throwing a steth- stethoscope on. But, yeah, it's this is a solid sequence. And kind of what I like about this whole... Firstly, what I like about this is that... Honestly, this is one of the few times where it's like a, this is what James Bond does all the time, but it's done to the from the other side. Yeah, this is you know, and it really establishes him as like a Bond equivalent. He's a one man army who just kind of gets in there, gets whatever needs to be done by any means necessary, and gets out. Um, and also, I kind of like the fact that although he wins all of the security, they're not just like dumb henchmen. There's oh, yeah. a little bit of goofiness there. But like he actually has to properly fight the guys that are there. Like this is as much as I was joking about the lack of security, at least like the guards are portrayed as being semi-competent. Like they're not just, you know, throw about people. So like he has to actually, you know, there's there's some effort expended to do his job here. And I appreciate that. I think, you know, and it, it works pretty well as a as a sequence and there's a parrot in the kitchen as a throwback i don't quite understand why that happened yeah uh, we monkeys parrot the, uh, john glenn's got a thing there. for animals because if you recall the parrot in for your uh eyes only gives away a clue as to where the uh the villain runs off to That's but the, right. par- the parrot in this film doesn't do anything there's i i keep thinking that there's gonna be a plot point with this parrot to that says like who did the crime but uh no, and and you touch on a good point with the this this like really brutal fight scene that happens in the kitchen with like the butler versus Necros because this guy he's like a servant but he still has like Bond's training and they're like trading some intense blows in this kitchen. What? Yeah, yeah. What, what, some how do good you stuff here? Yeah, and it's not and it's like and it's rare that you see just basically what amounts to an extra fighting a heavy in the film. It's usually Bond versus the heavy and it never happens any other way what do you what are your thoughts on like seeing just a regular guy fight uh the henchmen steve i mean yeah it was (laughs) i don't know i i just the the whole sequence i i was just i was completely fixated on the milk bombs like that was the only thing i was thinking about the entire time and also just just how like this whole thing is Yes, I get that James Bond is is a British secret agent, okay? But this whole sequence just seems like the most overly British fucking thing I have ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> like, here's Look, I yeah. mean, the whole thing is dependent on their need for dairy for high tea. Yeah, like, that's we know. <laughs> this is what's the whole empire is crumbling because yeah. of and this, also, this addiction. A milkman still exists, and he has to go out <laughs> to this like beautiful estate that is poorly guarded. And then just, like, all these, like, dundering, like, apologetic British men are getting their the shit kicked out of them by fake Dolph Lundgren with milk bombs. It's it's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I want to point out that uh, Necros is played by an actor named uh, Andreas Wisniewski, uh, and he's probably best known for playing uh, Tony, a.k.a. Carl's brother in Die Hard, who gets his uh, neck oh. snapped and put on the elevator. Oh, Tony. Yeah. Good old Tony. We'll never forget. All right, I know. It's funny that a guy so tall has the smallest feet in the world, according to that movie. But uh, anyway, <laughs> we move on. I was wondering about that because uh, they they mentioned in the actor bio that he's known for his great height, and they didn't say what height he was. So mm-hmm. I'm left hanging on that. But anyway, yeah. Well, I mean, he I think Dalton's like six one, and he seems to tower over him. So uh, 
Yeah, okay, who knows? Yeah, that'll do us. Yeah, anyways. Um, yeah, so Koskov, uh, he's essentially at the safe house, but then he's taken from the safe house through Necros's uh, attack. Um, and, then, and he's announced in this in this point that, that Pushkin, the right. current, who's General Gogol's replacement, because right. Gogol is our previous Russian head of intelligence, Pushkin's his replacement, and he's reinstated the, the old Stalin-era plan to murder all of the US and UK spies, which is weird that you would start that again, because I would have thought that the whole idea would be if you knew who people's spies were, you would probably, I guess maybe you wouldn't murder them, you just like, keep very close tabs on them and feed them stuff but like i i don't know i feel like if you if you know who the spies are then they're in danger so i don't know but anyway that's what's happening yeah. um the Schmier- cold war is gonna Schmierna. hot up yeah that's for all schmirsch as came in uh, right. which was a real thing apparently which was in casino royale and the terrible parody one for some reason they actually used that in that which is weird that the like most light-hearted ridiculous movie would actually quote a real you know soviet russia spy killing program yeah, I've, I've, I, I'm surprised they didn't have some bullshit fake title in that movie. But um, yeah, they probably have an acronym for like "Whoops" and it would stand <laughs> for something to do with you know, or like "Sorry, Madame" or something. I, you know, stand. God, that film sucked. Steve, did Whoops. you ever watch Casino Royale, the uh, the the spoof one? Uh, I have not seen. Not the, the sp- Daniel Craig one. If you I have, have not, not, you don't need to. Version. Okay, don't. Is that going to be a very... special episode? We did, we did it with Sean. Sean. Yeah. Oh my god! That was his first and only episode so far, um, but uh, and he's yeah, never sorry, been back. Sorry, Sean. No, we'll we'll have him back. That's a teaser for the audience. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, Koskov's taken. Bond decides to investigate who this uh, elusive cello player was uh, with the help of uh, Money Penny, who's uh, we have a new Money Penny. Her name is, or she's played by an actress named Carolyn Bliss. She's blonde and wears glasses. Uh, kind of more of a lighthearted, goofier. Money Penny than um, a low. She or, is, yeah. but but she does do some sleuthing in this, which kind yeah. of is interesting. She does, honestly, she does more in this. I feel than than Louise Louis, Louis Louis Maxwell managed to do in the whole thing. Very fair to say, uh, yeah. Which you know, which is not anything against her. She did what she had to do, but there is an attempt here to. I mean, it's not like this. Like, the Living Daylights isn't feminist. Spoiler alert, sorry, not really not really gonna win a lot of things for that. But they are trying to like money penny moves and she's she's more involved, she's more competent. There's still just a kind of a really weird interplay between her and Bond. Um I'm not sure if that's um Carolyn Bliss's just maybe maybe she's overselling it a little bit. There's like a very another HR incident about to happen here. Um because she's very into Bond, very clearly. Yeah, she invites um, him over to listen to her Barry Manilow records. Oh, God, I've forgotten that, yeah. <laughs> Classic <laughs> line, by the way. you got to watch out for that. Yeah. Oh, who can who can resist the, the Barry Manilow hook? That's oh. sunk many a man. Yeah, just imagining her and Dalton making sweet love by the fire while Mandy is playing. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's on the, the DVD outtakes. Yeah. I uh, I quite like her, though, as Money Penny. I think she's great. And like yeah. you said, she actually she's not a secretary. She's actually pulling up databases for Bond to to look into and actually helps track down the uh, the sniper, a.k.a. the cellist, a.k.a. Kara. And I really like that she does it as, like, a secret aside that Bond is like, don't tell anyone, just, you know, 
on you know between you and me let's do this and then she tracks her down on a wall of monitors every one of which has this woman's face (laughs) emblazoned on it which seems less than subtle M walks in hey what are you working on um i'm just looking at blonde ladies uh you know standard work stuff yeah we also get uh, some cue in this scene uh he's design first he's designing uh what's called a ghetto blaster oh my god the the dad humor. Oh, Prince Charles fired that rocket, by the way. I don't know if you guys noticed what? this. Yeah. Yeah, no, Prince Charles and Diana were on set that day, and uh, Prince Charles got to push the button to deploy the rocket from the Ghetto Blaster, which honestly is so on the fucking nose social commentary <laughs> that, um, in terms of the Ghetto Blaster, uh, is just insane. <laughs> but um yeah it's god that is like the dad joke of them all um but i kind of love it who who put that together and again with like bond is now a psychopath and uh, meanwhile here's q yeah. with the ghetto blaster and a killer sofa there's a killer sofa in this scene too which literally is like a something pull out a doctor who or something like they- it's a monster that just eats people who sit on it um it's a very weird vibe <laughs> Yeah, the death sofa, the sofa that eats. Um, and uh, yeah, he gives Bond a, what's actually really his only one gadget in the film, or at least the one that comes to mind, is the uh, the key ring, which it has. A, first of all, it has a key that opens eighty percent of the world's locks, which is pretty sweet. Uh, it also has a uh, it emits a like a knockout gas if he whistles uh, "Hail Britannia." And if he whistles a wolf whistle, which they I, I personally like decide for Bond, it becomes a small James plastic Bond, explosive. Like, who honestly um, gets nifty, so much tail, it's just absurd. In his spare time, still sexually harasses women on the street. <laughs> <laughs> he still can't resist yeah. it. That, that makes sense to me. Yeah, just James Bond like si- sitting on a stoop in, in <laughs> London, right. just fucking whistling at yeah. women and hollering at them as they walk by. <laughs> oh, You know, work hard, play hard. His, his pocket is going off. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Bond discovers the identity of Kara. Uh, he goes over to, uh, I believe she's in Bratislava, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but, uh, this is some, this is a very cool sequence where Bond actually does some sleuthing because he follows her on a public transportation on a bus. She gets picked up by some guys and leaves behind her cello. Uh, he takes the cello into a nearby men's room and pull, puts it in a stall, and he finds that it has the sniper rifle in it, and the rifle is armed with blanks. Then he uses that to f- make his way back to uh, Carr's apartment, where he waits for her return. Um, and this is like a very cool, largely wordless sequence, which is just sort of Dalton observing things from the oh, background. We're converted and on the you mentioned Dalton's now. <laughs> just his great green eyes. It, it just it's great. To, it's cool to just to kind of watch him. I I I don't want to start an argument, Jack. God damn it. But uh, I, I, uh, yeah, I just yeah. sort of like I just any sleuthing in a Bond film is just very refreshing. And Dalton's yeah, and just of course, this, the use of the blanks confirms his um, suspicion so, that the, yeah, there's a lot of the, good stuff uh, here. Defection uh, previously supervised was actually fake, and that Koskov, in fact, never really defected. He he faked his defection yeah. to plant a seed of doubt, which is a pretty good kind of. And Lisa, it unfolds very naturally wordlessly it's and it's one of two really nice little passages of of story delivery in this film and kind of clever 
kind of script, you know, kind of clever storyline. The next one is when they when they talk about what they're doing with the money and drugs in Afghanistan. I quite mm. liked that. Is you know, th- this script I think is a, a cut above, really. You know, a, pretty much anything that's come in like the recent era to the, to this, and it's still it's still Richard Maybaum and um, uh, who's the other Michael G. Uh, what's his name? Is it Mankiewicz? I don't know. Uh, no, Michael G. Wilson. Wilson. Uh, Mankiewicz. Mankiewicz. Who is, who is of course, of the Broccoli clan, but, you know, let's give him nepotism. Oh, as well, Michael, Michael G. But, Wilson, but, um, of course. Yeah, Maybom, this he, he'd been writing him since Doctor yeah. No, but, like, this film feels... It just feels trickier and more... Not realistic, but it has some of these realist passages, more grounded passages like this. Uh, and I appreciate it. It's kind of, It's been a while. Roger Moore was not a sleuth. He, he'd, no, have, he'd have no. sex Roger with Moore everyone would, in the room uh, and then something would fall out of someone's the, uh, pocket at the end needed. of it and that would be um, the clue and it would be unrelated yeah it would be unrelated to the sex that was just fun that's the sleuthing in a human orifice it's, that's where they all are yeah <laughs> it's yeah exactly I can't dispute it um yeah, so uh, Bond uh, announces himself to Kara Malovi as a friend of Koskov. Um, she's Koskov's girlfriend, which further uh, tightens this knot of mystery that this uh, plot becomes. Um, so Bond uh, and sh- her apartment's being watched by these, um, I don't know if they're, I think they're like KGB guys. Uh, th- th- actually, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're, sorry, I'm just going over my notes while I'm speaking, which is not a great idea. But yeah, her apartment's being watched. So they devised this cool little plan that I really like to get her out of the apartment where she walks out with her uh, cello case and goes into a phone booth and Bond pulls up in his car, uh, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, and then they do like a very cool little switcheroo where as a trolley passes by, um, she sneaks out and covers the cello case with her jacket. So it looks like she's still in the phone booth while Bond drives her off to safety. Um Cool little maneuver. I like it. I don't know how you guys, if you guys feel strongly about it's, it. But, yeah, uh, I, I like again, it it's, it's more not, more spy work that I think is very thrilling to watch. Like, I, I don't think a contemporary Bond uh, film yeah. would do something like this, but I I just like how just silly and simple it is, but still effective. Yeah, there's no gadgetry involved. It's literally th- they threw a coat on cello case. You know, good low fi yeah. work with what you got stuff. That's that's how I get away with uh, not doing anything at work. I just I put a, a cello case at my desk. Yeah, and then put you've my given away in. all your you've given away all your secrets, oh, Steve. No. They're gonna they're gonna find out. <laughs> yeah, you have one of those. Uh, it's like that episode of The Simpsons where he replaces he like he has one of those that's birds that dips its beak into water. Is like typing at his keyboard for him all day so he doesn't have to work. Um, yeah. I mean, a little, yeah, a little. Uh, car yeah, so chase. then there's a little car chase uh, with <laughs> yeah. some lasers. Uh, well, yeah, where he cuts the, um, the wheels of, off, and, like cuts the undercarriage yeah. off uh, an entire car. Yeah, I don't think cars are assembled like that, but I'm no mechanic, so what do I know? Uh, like the whole wheelbase. Yeah. Yeah, I can't dispute it. Um, he because fires he missiles at a, a truck barricade, and he's driving on the ice for a while. Um, in these, oh, he's back yeah. in an Aston Martin too, which he hadn't been for. 
yeah. for the longest time because Roger Moore, you're, which still <laughs> yeah. confuses the hell out of me, honestly, it's that Roger that, Moore yeah. that's up here with the Lotus. And like Roger Moore is clearly an Aston Martin man, if anything, not a Lotus. That was like a weird, a weird thing. But then again, I think the Lotus is only in like two of the seven yeah. uh, Roger no, Moore yeah. movies anyway. I'm not sure if those numbers are correct. But honestly, if I think Roger Moore era James Bond, I don't think of the Lotus Maybe a little bit of that submarine stuff, but like the car is not really part of the Roger Moore era. Um, but they, you know, there's a little bit of throwback here that he's he's back in an Aston Martin, albeit one with uh, an afterburner. Yeah, well, it's a great looking Aston too. I think this is probably I'm not really a car guy, so to speak, but I think this is probably my favorite Aston Martin in the series. And I know the DB5 from Goldfinger is king. But uh, this one, the the Aston Martin V8 Vantage, as it's known, I, I am not uh, a car. I think guy, this is a great looking car. Cars, um, Steve, you a car guy at all? Any car the thoughts? James Bond films that I have watched, and I have not watched as much as fair. Jack. Clearly, this this is again just one of my favorites because it's it's a classic Aston Martin, fair. which I mean, come on, that's synonymous with James Bond. But also, just the design of it, it has a very 80s look to it so you know if i won the lottery tomorrow and i could drive any stupid car that i wanted to this Mm -hmm. would be very high on my list that makes sense and i feel it's more like aston martin's more like it's more associated with james bond because honestly you could not fit a set of golf clubs in the back of a lotus i don't think that's a real you know i don't think that's a realistic expectation and we know bond is he's of that social class so you know, Aston Martin makes sense. You can you can fit a you can probably fit a set of golf clubs and a dead hooker well, in the back of one of those things. And a cello case. I, yeah, I gotta say, compared to other Bond cars, and, and, and a and a and a cello case. Experience with an actual Bond forget. car was actually at Jake's wedding. He had a a James <laughs> Bond vehicle that he he drove he drove to the wedding in, and I got to sit in it. And my two major takeaways That's were. Right. I am not a large man, and I barely fit in this. And also, it, it, I, I mean, I didn't drive it. I just sat at it. But just sitting in it in a parking lot, it was just like, this is the most dangerous feeling thing I have ever been in. <laughs> at any moment, I just feel like it was just going to like flip over in the parking spot and just murder me. That's a quality engineering speaking. That's what you want. That's that's the gentleman's the gentleman's gambit. <laughs> Driving one of yeah. those things, you know, if, if single single hit and that windshield is going to just break into razor it's, sharp yeah. plates of glass, it'll take it's, your head uh, off. You you are absolutely if you drive that car it's, it was a 1957 Porsche Speedster if you drive that car you're the cool you're easily the coolest motherfucker on the road I mean I had people craning their necks to watch me go by which oh, is a very dead. odd feeling I'd never experienced before but if you get in one accident in that thing you're you're totally yeah. fucked it's a it's a tin can it's a tin can with a yeah. strap across the waist and, and, and by that's, accident, that, that's not like, and there's no there's no hard top you you're like you're done for if, if lot, you crash like that car thing would just turn into a fucking fireball. <laughs> it does not. <laughs> yeah. There's there's no fender benders. Oh yeah, I a, a woman almost hit me with her that's shopping it. cart, that's, and that's the way it should I be. Exploded. And I will say, um, I feel like the, the honestly, Jake, you just mentioned the part yeah. where he just casually sticks a cello yeah. case in the back of the Aston Martin, not in the trunk, in the, like the back seat, and that honestly looked like a sleight of hand to me. That was like the magician, like 
unfolding the newspaper so that it's actually ginormous. You know, like the opposite of that. Like somehow he had a whole cello case and suddenly it becomes like a violin he just casually inserts. <laughs> Uh, I think the cello yeah. changes size several times in this film, particularly in uh, um, after the car chase, right. which we were on around at that point in the movie. They then slalom oh. down the slope on a on the the cello case, oh and I God. swear at certain points there that the the cello case changes size um, <laughs> at certain points. Just yeah, I just feel that's that's my feeling. And also her cello, which is a Stradivarius, gets shot. It, ha- it has and to. gets a bullet hole in it. But apparently it's still performance grade. It's fine. She continues to use it. And I feel like, honestly, okay, Bond saved her life. But if I had a Stradivarius and my whole life is basically playing it professionally as a cellist and it got a bullet hole in it, I'd just be pissed at the guy. No matter what. I don't care. <laughs> I and love the really cello forgiving sled, about it. by the way. And <laughs> I, I have a, a slightly amusing story related it's to a- this. So I was... I was watching Living Daylights, and Susan, uh, my girlfriend, Let's came home from work, and she walked to the front door, and she like went in the kitchen to get something to drink, and uh, she was just like shouting at me from the kitchen, not like love like just like, hey, what are you doing? Blah blah blah. She's like, oh, what are you watching? I'm like, oh, Living Daylights, and she's like, oh, cool. And then there's this pause, and then she just goes, cello sled. <laughs> it just kept doing what she was doing. <laughs> it's officially iconic. That's all you need to know, That's guys. All you need cello to know. sled. Yeah. What is the Living Daylights? Uh, cello sled. Yeah. When I went to uh, London for our, my honeymoon, I famously went to the uh, the Bond in Motion Museum, which had every vehicle from every Bond film. And next to this Aston Martin V8 Vantage, they, you better believe they had they a cello equal, sled with a cello with a bullet hole in the cello next to it. Mm-hmm. I agree. I got, yeah, it's pretty... Yeah, but I love the cello sled. I love the little, like, they slide over, down over the hill the to get across the guard, border. Yeah, I love the little fence. toss he does throwing the cello over the border uh, partition. Yeah. And it's just her, that's, Cara, waving the passport. And she said, we have nothing to declare. Also, at this point, I will, a, I'll just mention about um, about Mariam Dabo yeah. uh, and as Bond um, girl. I gotta say, I think she's a really... She's a step up. We we haven't had some very good Bond girls in a while. Um, I I just want to say that like I just I think she's she doesn't have a huge amount to do in this thing, but she's not like oh, a yeah. simpering moron. She's kind of she's definitely like being dragged along. Like she's a cellist. She's not into international espionage, and she's been used by by Koskov, mm-hmm. and so she's not like on an equal pegging with Bond. Fair enough. He's kind of bringing her along, but like she's not like dead weight simpering idiot mm-hmm. which some previous bond girls have oh, been sure. and i appreciate that she she's just a much like she's clearly fish out of water but she's not insufferable yeah. in the and she's not she doesn't spend like in the last movie she doesn't spend the entire time just hanging off things and shouting for help i think she's so, the audience surrogate because she yeah. seems just as in the dark with what the actual plot is as right I did so I can respect that. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, just just throwing that out there <laughs> that I think we we have a step. As I say, maybe this isn't a feminist text, but uh, some some good improvements have been made here over A View to a Kill and many other of the James Bond era films or previous James Bond installments. Yeah. 
I I'm a big fan of Kara. I think she may be in my top five uh, for the whole series. And like just like you said, it's how she's it's how the character is handled. Um, it's 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 done really well with her, and I think she brings a nice touch of humanity to the role. And like you know, like you said, she's she's at their points where she's all she's you know she's asking questions and she seems just as lost as we are but yeah. is like she's in no understandably ways, like, confused irritating. because some weird like she's not like a brit eckland in the i will also note um, i found out apparently matilda may uh yeah. auditioned for this role and uh, anyone exactly. who's seen yeah anyone who's seen life force i know that would make a uh oh. that's a good film the we're life doing toby hooper aren't we uh soon yeah there oh, we yeah. go so. the, the crossover the crossover yeah you heard it here first <laughs> you get to well, spoiler alert for our, uh, yeah, or we might even be in the midst of it with our uh, release schedule, but um, all right. Uh, yeah, so after this sequence, I believe it's about time that oh, we meet uh, just our other to, villain they of just the called movie, the character uh, Joe Mr. Don Joe Baker. Baker. What do they call him? Um, Steve? Yeah, Brad Whitaker's yeah, Brad the worst like, name. Okay. Like, it's like, this is a dude who's just like, it's works certainly better than Brad Whitaker. I mean, that's Why basically what Joe Don Baker is. Okay. It so is. Let me, let me go off on my Joe Don Baker tangent. <laughs> I fucking love Joe Don Baker. Uh, uh, if he's you, a regional if manager of a. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and you're thinking, like, oh, like, what uh, the, yeah. the, the fictional actor Rick Dalton, like, who would he be in real life? And the answer is Joe Don Baker. Because Joe Don Baker in, in like the 50s and 60s, he did, I think he did like Mod Squad and Bonanza and just like a bunch of cowboy shows. They did some Western movies. And then after that, he's he had a little bit of a career resurgence with, with the Bond films. But most of his life, he just spent like doing these like goofy, shitty one-offs where he was the star. But also, Joe Don Baker's not a star. So... If you are a Mystery <laughs> Science Theater 3000 fan, you probably know him as the titular Mitchell in the movie Mitchell. Um, he was He's also, he plays the sheriff in Final Justice, which is mm-hmm. uh, another amazing, which I believe he did right before this, because I think Final Justice was like 85 or 86. So it would have been like, he probably did that right before he did this movie, which is crazy. Absolutely crazy. Yeah, 85. But yeah, most of his movies are just super cheap, low-budget B-films, westerns, action f- films. He looks like just a brick shit house in every single film that he's in. And the last thing... <laughs> My favorite... The last thing oh, I yeah, will say no, go about ahead. Joe Don Baker is if you, if you watch Final Justice, which you should, it's terrible. But I want you to remember that, one, Joe Don Baker is a golden god, and two... Even though it's shot like absolute just squirting diarrhea, the cinematographer for Final Justice is Joseph von Sternberg's son. That's a real fucking oh, fact. Holy shit. Look that shit up. That's it's a, real. That is amazing. <laughs> Quite the pedigree. Yeah. Go ahead, Jack. Well, I, just well, had to, speak, I just had to get that factoid of, in there. <laughs> no, that's amazing. I did not know that. No, speaking of pedigree, uh, Joe Don Baker, one of his other bigger film roles was he played glad, uh, yeah. Steve McQueen's brother in Junior Bonner. And apparently on the set of that film did not get on with a certain uh, Mr. Sam Peckinpah, the director, and said that the only reason he didn't beat Peckinpah up is because Steve McQueen stopped him. <laughs> so... <laughs> Which all goes goes in together to show that basically Joe Don Baker is secretly the star of this movie, oh, absolutely. and he he's great. He I, again, why is he Brad Whitaker? Is such a boring name for this dude who is literally a uh, stealing valor 
crazy military fanaticist who considers himself to be like a new Napoleon and he just has wax figures of himself dressed in all these other generals clothing and has fake his medals change in between different shots to yeah. different points in the film all of his army medals change because they're all fake because he's not actually in the military i think bond points out he got kicked out at some point and he just reenacts battles and stuff like he's just insane and i really like i wish there was more of him in this movie yeah. to be honest <laughs> Yeah, muddled. so this is where our plot sort of becomes—I uh, don't want to say muddled, but uh, it's it's certainly more twisted with the with uh, with Whitaker. I mean, yeah, you could say muddled. That's fair. Um, but yeah, so Whitaker is working with uh, Pushkin, who's the current head of the KGB, because he's a Whitaker's a very—I don't know if it's uh, illicit, but he's very much a, a big arms dealer. And Pushkin has given him a deposit for some arms, and uh, Whitaker has not made any purchases, so Pushkin is trying to get a refund. This causes Push or Whitaker to worry because now he goes back to Koskov, who says that Pushkin wants out of their deal. And I think we should note at this point that uh, Pushkin is on to Koskov for embezzling uh, government funds from the KGB. Um, but uh, more on that later. Let's go back to Vienna, where Bond and uh, Kara are at a carnival, which is a very this is so uh, much better than the fun thing that you never get to see is Bond uh, enjoying some leisure time at a carnival with, uh, the, uh, with the killer clown with the with the throwing octopusy. This is such a better fairground circus sequence. Octopusy. And actually, I posted yeah, about this, this circus uh, on there. Twitter. I took a screen grab. This is a really nice looking sequence. This whole setup. This is just a. You know, I kind of feel that, like, Bond movies, generally what's impressed about Bond movies is what's happening in the frame, like the action itself. But there's actually some particularly really nice framing in this and really nice kind of shots in right. this, this sequence and a, kind of a really good balancing of color and composition, which is surprising. You know, you don't normally find that in a lot of Bond movies. But, um, yeah, they, they unfold more plot here. And at this point, Bond is uh, kind of reforming with saunders who jake says like stuffy and up or, uptight from the, the original meeting with him earlier but it's kind of come around they, they have a mutual professional respect at this point which of course means saunders is about to get murdered by necros um because that's what happens when you know you're friends with james bond yeah Again, unconvincing in that role. Yeah, Necros is a disguise um, himself really disguise as a balloon well, salesman at the carnival, and he's every man. Just not really, yeah. not really a thing. But anyhow, yeah, uh, and this is a this is a very good little sequence here, where Saunders, who's just kind of been like a little stuffy uh, British. Uh, fellow agent who's not really he's really no fun like he wants to do everything by the book and be a professional and bond is uh i just rem reminded myself that we skipped over one of the best parts of this movie but we'll go back to it um and uh they've kind of reached like an understanding and saunders is like you know i'm here to help bond out and he gives him some information but the necros kills him with a, a yeah by rigging an automatic sliding glass door so that it slams into a full speed kind of restrained from doing so until an evil hand Henchman hacks it. They definitely that pneumatic thing yeah. on them. They actually can crush you. Uh, but yeah, it, it works pretty well. It's it's a really good sequence. Yeah. And Dalton again sells this. Roger Moore couldn't do this sequence because Saunders is killed, and they just had kind of a they they kind of had this 
point where they reach kind of a professional understanding that you know uh, Saunders is more by the book more of a professional kind of management type and Bond is a hands dirty in the field guy and um, but they kind of reach an understanding and then Saunders dies and Timothy Dalton's Bond just looks distraught and angry like the and this is the revenge element which will form license to kill Well, he gets a he a balloon passes by, and the balloon says "Smeart Spionum," which is the death to spies credo. Yeah, Bond grabs it, he pops it with his bare hands, and he's like just palpably filled with rage. He sees a bunch of balloons over a hedge, and he jumps over it and points his gun at the person holding the balloons, and it's just a little kid, and like just the sort of like this this awkward embarrassment that Bond feels as to like not yeah. like letting being overcome with emotion and not making a good judgment um again it's 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 a it's a strange like sense of humility that you never really see the character and then when Kara later meets up with Bond she asks him like oh where were you he like turns his head away from her to hide tears in his eyes there's like a great close up shot with him and his eyes are like visibly yeah, red Roger on the blu-ray Moore could do this it's a <laughs> like, great this sequence and Dalton is fucking like, perfect some kind of a joke about a sliding door and then he would have like carried on yeah. somewhere probably would have ordered a drink you know to go and head it out that's uh, yeah probably. he would have probably had a joke about the uh the double o falling to his death in the pre-title sequence too but um yeah yeah saunders uh reminded me we didn't even mention after uh bond misses the sniper they're driving off together having smuggled koskov out of the country and uh Saunders is saying that, uh, you know, M will, like, I'll be reporting this to your superiors. And Bond says, if M fires me, I'll thank him for it. Uh, which is also, like, something that you never hear Bond hear is where he's just sort of tired and even, done with this role. Bond and it's like, it's like hey, you want to fire me? Fine, me. I'm out. Um, and then he drops the... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, if and then he drops the title Irish, of the movie, uh, which is great. Just uh, whoever she was, Jesus. it must have scared the living daylights out of her. Uh, missed opportunity there that'd be a really good like just James Bond in <laughs> Jesus if only he was an Irish Bond the closest we've got to that is Taffin I want AHA to write a song called The Bejesus <laughs> is it- they have Clonid to do the opening credits it would be great I want, I want Irish oh James God. Bond now the Irish we've intelligence service uh, probably trying to work out like who stole like the milk out of the fridge. That would be like the mission, and Bond would be called uh, in to figure it out. And he'd probably get it wrong, but he cost taxpayer twenty million euro. Is it great? Is it Dalton Welsh? Yeah, he is Welsh. Oh, yes, well, they, there's no, none of them are English. Like Daniel Craig is like uh, the like Daniel Craig and Roger Moore are the only two English Bonds. Everyone else is like from around. Close, but no cigar. A weird thing, actually, just as an aside, because I because it blew my mind. Okay, so among the people that they were so, considering for this, yeah. Sam Neill was nearly James Bond. Okay, Christopher Reeves was nearly James mm-hmm. Bond. Um, that that nearly worked out. But also Mel Gibson and Christopher Lambert yeah. were in consideration. <laughs> Could you imagine Christopher Lambert as James Bond? Like he. He like he's oh, he's God. not English. He doesn't even sound like English. he's never sounded American or English in any of his films. He's clearly in <laughs> yeah, like that's uh, that is the weirdest thing. I mean, ah, this is like Christopher This would be the weirdest uh, kind of movement. But anyway, I just wanted to just mention that. Just uh, 
consider that everyone that that never happened oh. sam neil would have been interesting sam neil could have done it because yeah. sam neil's you know he can act he's good but christopher lambert yeah. is why i love some of christopher lambert's movies but him as james bond would be a very strange proposition to me Keep keep him in Fortress and Highlander and classics like that. That is well, that mean, is very odd choice. So I'm glad. Lambert, yeah. James Bond. We just got like Highlander Part Four: The Quickening or whatever. Yeah, it's <laughs> just as good. Oh yeah. Oh man, the also starring Sean Connery. But hey, uh, yeah, you gotta li- make a living somehow. Um, so Saunders' death push, pushes Bond over the edge. He decides he needs to do something about this spirit spionum business. So he tracks down the man that he believes to be behind the operation, uh, Pushkin, who I don't think we've mentioned yet, is played by uh, John Reese davies who if you're yes, not on board with John Baker, certainly you've got to be on board with him because he's just uh, great in any role that he does. So if you've ever um, seen... Yeah, if, if you've never seen John Rhys-Davies in anything, that means you don't watch films. It was only a matter of you've time. You've just never seen any Bond films. Yeah. Uh, you've definitely seen him somewhere. John Rhys-Davies is the guy where you go, oh, who's <laughs> that guy? He's really good every time you see him. He's the guy who looks like Pavarotti. That's that's him. Like Pavarotti, but with a deep voice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, an English voice, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so Bond breaks into his hotel room. Um, he's got him held up at gunpoint. This is another thrilling Dalton sequence that I don't think any other Bond could have played as well. Um, Pushkin reveals that uh, Koskov is a fraud. He's been stealing government money, and Spirit Spionum is not uh, activated. Um, there's a little intense moment where Pushkin pushes, like, he calls for his security on his watch, and Bond notices it, so he rips the robe off of his uh, wife. And has her just stand uh, like half naked in the doorway. So when the guard comes in, he's distracted for Bond to knock him out. And then he throws her her rope to go to the bathroom. But it's kind of it's kind of a very cold move that uh, we like. I mean, I know Connery strangles a woman with her bikini top in the beginning of Diamonds Are Forever. But this is nothing like that. This is a very dark and intense sequence. Um, but uh, again, kudos to Dalton for making it work. Um, but, uh, yeah, so then they, uh, have to stage Pushkin's assassination, and Necros happens to be there to assassinate Pushkin, but Bond shoots him first, and they have, a uh, with some no, squibs reaped to his bullets. chest that, um, he's wearing, he's I don't believe this is how jacket. squibs yeah, with... work normally. Oh, I see, I see. Normally, yeah. That's what I'm saying. He's got a bulletproof jacket with blood packs. Yeah, this is this over is like if your stun pops him by like, shooting don't him. Have money and, and it's so just thankful that Bond's a straight shot. And that's what this uh, feels like, which is you know a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, always a bad idea. But um, I think it's great. Bond makes a getaway off the rooftops of oh, Tangier. Um, yeah, no. Any thoughts on this uh, little set piece here, a, Steve? Fun little chase sequence across the classic roof. Dalton. It's good and. Again, it, it fits in line with just the sort of shagginess of this whole movie because there's certain points when Dalton is hopping across roofs or, you know, the, the stuntman is. I'm just like, Jesus, he's going to fall and just crack his head at any point. So, yeah, it's 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 just a fun scene. And they, and it, it, it keeps they still the find too. a – yeah, and they still find a pool just 
with a bunch of women in bikinis there that they've just ran that the camera just goes in among all these women in bikinis who are like oh who's this guy running across the roof and it's like inexplicable how this shot fits in really with the rest of the sequence but they still they still got it in there which i appreciate yeah. and yeah. also this is surely a, a precursor to uh, is it taken three i don't even remember whichever one where he's running across the rooftops or like turkey you know throwing grenades oh yeah daughter, that's taken too yeah, taking yeah, throwing grenades around so that his daughter can find out, and just an amazing act of terrorism, uh, which is basically what the Taken movies are. But anyhow, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, that's, that's, it's, it's crazy. Is he's like, hey, I'm trying. He's trying to find his daughter, and he says to her, "Start throwing grenades so I can hear where you are, and then I'll track you down." Yeah, no, totally, and you know, victimless crime because I don't live in Turkey, um, which is really the mindset. Is like we're only passing through, so it's fine, you know. What, now, what could, what's the worst that can happen when you throw grenades in a densely populated city? Yeah. Before we move on from this section, I do want to say that there is a deleted scene, which you can watch on YouTube, where uh, Bond takes a stiff rug that was hanging out to dry, throws it over some cables, and then slides down it to make his escape. And a bunch of onlookers look over and see him, and it appears that Bond is flying a magic carpet to safety. <laughs> and Dalton uh-huh. fought to get it cut from the movie because he said it didn't fit the tone, which... Uh, I guess they were right to, but it still exists, and you can check it out. So I think all credit to Dalton for that. Yeah. I think Living Daylight's call. magic carpet is a very real thing. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, uh, just as a weird aside here, okay, so um, the Tangier chief of security is played by an actor called Nadim Sawalha, who. Mm-hmm. People may know, actually, if you're a fan of British comedy, he's the father of Julia Sawala, who was in Absolutely Fabulous as the long-suffering daughter. Hopefully she wasn't as long-suffering a daughter in her actual home life. But uh, I just thought it was really, really funny because Nadim Sawala plays Tangier Chief of Security. But in 1997, he acted in a movie that's just called Tangier Cop. Which I just wonder is sort of like some kind of weird throwback to this. Or, you know, talk about being typecast as just a police officer in Tangier. Um totally irrelevant to everything else but i just felt i had to point that out this is one of the things you dig you find you're like yeah that's weird yeah tangier cop still working for all these <laughs> years um but uh yeah the particulars of my notes here get a little uh, muddled themselves because bond escapes but then he does get uh oh right so uh they use kara to drug bond's tea so he's captured by uh, koskov and his men um and he's put in a jail in an uh air base in afghanistan um, this is where he uses his keychain ring to uh, distract the guards with the smoke so that he can fight them and knock them out. Um, this plan barely works, by the yeah, way. Yeah. Um, like, the stun gas is like, it, 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 they should get better stun gas. It, it only really, lasts for 30 seconds, is what yeah, he says. If even. Yeah, and well, he's still they even handcuffed. say, like, oh, it, it works for 30 seconds as long as the target isn't too big. And then, like, Dalton jokes, like, well, I mean, I think most of my targets are, so. Uh. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, the dude, the prisoner, prison warden is uh, quite a large fella. That's right. Um, it looks like he, he doesn't skip dinner day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this guy's uh, this guy's quite a character. And uh, another little brutal fight scene, too. Like, he gets his arm smashed in the, uh, the bars of the door. Um, but, uh, yeah, Bonda, but they, you know, they fight him off, as Bond always does. He and Kara escape. They free the prisoner in the cell next to him, who's this, uh, who turns out to be uh, played by an actor named Art Malik. His name is Kamra Shah, and he's the leader of the Muhajadeen. Uh, and this is where the politics of the film get a little dicey. Uh, I was wondering about this, because um, 
because I feel like they they introduce him as like we need to speak to the Mujahideen and they like laugh as if they're not the Mujahideen and like I I was wondering in the film is like are they trying to distance themselves a little just because it's this was very hot politics at the time and that you know and in distancing themselves a little from it I don't know if they successfully did it because it's pretty obvious what they're referencing to and even they still mention the Mujahideen etc but you know trying to avoid the uh, the Rambo three trap which is openly uh, affiliating yourself with the same guys who would later, you know, do a little thing on in September that really <laughs> caused had some ripples. Oh no, we're gonna get canceled now. You said nine eleven was a little thing. <laughs> a yeah. little. I mean, it was you know Crazy like little East thing Coast called terrorism. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. Oh, that's, so it's, uh, I'm, I don't live on the East Coast. You know, New York. Uh, you know, who's been there? Yeah. I, well, I think I think in Rambo <laughs> they actually like call it out in the credits where they're like, "This film they is do. dedicated to the brave fighters of the Mujahideen." They've changed that. They've apparently they've since re- like if you buy Rambo three on Blu-ray now they've like removed that finally like because oh, it was there for years. On. And I, th- yeah. I think they finally changed it to, I don't know what they've changed it to or if they just removed it entirely. But yeah, Rambo is no longer, uh, you know, Taliban, mm-hmm. you know, kind of approved. Like Osama bin Laden with two thumbs up, like, hey, yeah, <laughs> fantastic. And this is like, so obviously James Bond films, one of the reasons why people love them is that they are, they're, they're timeless in a way, but also extremely of their time. And this, yes, this is a, yes. a wonderful example of that. And it's just, it fits completely in lockstep with just, I mean, I guess European, but mostly American worldview of if it ain't Russian, it's actually very good. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, so you, yeah, you know, you have movies uh, just, you know, throwing up high fives for the Mujahideen. Uh, this is a fun fact. So there are two people that have received the key to the city in the city of Detroit. Uh, one is former Detroit Lions running back great and arguably greatest of all time, Barry Sanders. The other is, um, you know, a little uh, former Iraqi leader, uh, Saddam Hussein. Maybe you've heard of him. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Who in like 1983 received the key to the city of Detroit. So, you know, a lot of these things happen. It's like, oh, yeah, we sold you guys guns. You must be good. Mm, No, maybe don't do that. And it's very very confusing because the Bond films have generally tried to not provoke like i mean russia was always was an enemy of the west considered there was that you know right from the 1960s you know the cold war has always loomed large in them and they've they've you know they've danced around it and incorporated as necessary but they always had like general gogol and even pushkin in this film is you know they're there's they always present like there's reasonable men in charge of russia you know even in an octopus is where where the guy goes completely rogue um Mm -hmm. you know that's that's not russian sanctioned so the bond movies are always very in their own vision are kind of they they want to present this kind of reasonable view of russia probably more so they can sell the movies maybe in russia more than because they actually have you know a, a feeling of you know being equitable towards foreign superpowers but it, it is weird that then they just go all in on this uh afghani war kind of trope it's, yeah. it's very it's a strange one it's it seems this feels more hotly political than i mean i know in previous ones they, they've like referenced the energy crisis and one of the roger moore films you know but like yeah. you know they, they you know they've acknowledged a few real events here and there but this seems like very 
on the nose, like ripped from the headlines. It's it's a little unusual that they went this far, you know, I think. But, you know, so be it. It's now just kind of, like I say, one of those weird, goofy 80s movie excess things. It is, but also it feels like an attempt at some sort of uh, verisimilitude, if I could be pretentious for a second, because this is a very... Very much, uh, I feel like a lot of care has been written in the script to sort of make it more believable as an espionage film. So I think they just sort of dipped into a lot of what was going on in the world at the time. Uh, and yeah, so sure enough, here we are. James Bond joins forces with the Mujahideen to fight the Russians. <laughs> That's the third act of this movie. Um, Man, Sylvester Stallone couldn't have done it better himself. Yeah. Well, anyways, I guess this is so the Mujahideen, Mujahideen, is it Mujahideen or Mujahideen? I don't. Mujahideen. Mujahideen. That's right. Okay, so um, they uh, here's where everything comes together, but you may not grasp this on the first dozen viewings of this film because it's just so <laughs> so convoluted. But basically, it all boils down to this. I, I think I got it, you guys. Here we go. Koskov is embezzling funds from the Russian government to acquire diamonds. Now, the diamonds that he's going to use is to trade with the Mujahideen for opium, and then he's going to turn around and sell the opium to uh, turn a profit and then also have money to buy funds or buy uh, weaponry from Brad Whitaker, who he'll also be splitting some of the funds from the opium with. Uh, Pushkin is onto Koskov, because he knows he's using funds illicitly and is trying to take him down. So uh, Koskov fakes his defection and says that Pushkin has enabled Schmirt Spionum to kill spies, hopingly to convince MI6 to take care of Pushkin. And he also hires MI6 to take care of Kara as the sniper, hoping that Bond would kill her and tie up all loose ends. But all of this... <laughs> Makes perfect sense. So, perfect yeah, sense. It's, it's pretty good, because I, I mentioned earlier about that there were a few things in this film that I think are, you know, really solid story devices. And I do really like the idea of a rogue agent in the Russian government who basically gets a huge amount of government money and then realizes he can turn a massive profit on it in a short right. time by doing just drug dealing, basically. And then he can then, you know, with this massive profit, he can still buy, you know, what he was meant to buy. And he's also cut in with the dealer, so he gets a cut from it. And, yeah. But he can also, you know, just pocket a huge amount of money in the interim. Because, like, this is legitimately actual government business. Like, this is uh, this is what people with lots of money do. You know? I don't get the diamonds <laughs> uh, part. Explain the diamonds part to me. Because what, what Well, because are... otherwise there wouldn't be the heart in a box. Well, I mean, well, that, that, that visually it's great. <laughs> but I don't understand, like... The d- what does the diamonds I thought of last night? It's basically it's a universal currency because they okay. can't convert a, like fifty million or however many millions of Russian uh, dollars into uh, something that the Mujahideen could then use to finance their own warfare. So the diamonds I think is, and it's not really explained how they get the diamonds. They just happen to look inside of a. But, yeah, a, it's a heart transplant case. Uh, which is, has a baboon heart, is to give the illusion that the heart is for Bond as he's held captive so that they can get through airport security. Wait, which is which is funny that they use diamonds, because like in reality, I'm pretty sure what happened was that the Americans didn't give them Hushedin weapons because they were trying to stay out of it officially. So what they did instead yeah. was they struck a deal with Israel to give Soviet weapons right. to the Mujahideen, um 
And now I think that was part of what happened there, which honestly probably would have been easier with dollars. But anyway, it's a nice, I like the idea behind it. It's like the idea of kind of, so, so much of, um, so much of Bond is like, crazy guy wants to destroy the world you know he wants to flood the world or nuke it or you know turn everyone against each other etc etc this is just a basically a high-ranking politician who's looking to run some drug deals on the side to make a load of money while also advancing his career by getting rid of you know people around him so you know and it's it's a much more not you know it's a much more realistic construction of things even though obviously there's some outlandish elements within it i really you know i kind of appreciate that this film has you know kind of like koskov is is he's a pretty great villain he's a little bit understated in the film because he's more of like a bureaucrat mm -hmm. um and so um you know so so joran krabe who plays him who's a dutch actor who's been he was in several of like paul verhoeven's dutch films actually um hmm. i don't i've really seen a lot of his other stuff but um i think he does a really good job of playing like a very confident slimy asshole basically but he, he he's not mega megalomaniacal he's not like unhinged so i feel like he gets yeah, a little bit a, lost just a greedy greedy jerk yeah and so so it's kind of unfortunate and I, I, I don't know how to balance it you know i don't know how you'd balance it better in the film in that i think that he does really well and he and i kind of like the kind of villain he is i kind of think the bond universe could do with more of this um you know more grounded kind of criminal enterprise but at the same time, the movie is so wild and some of its other, you know, I mean, we're about to get into basically just a protracted land war in Afghanistan. Um, he kind of gets lost a little bit in the mix for me. Um, and I don't I don't know, because I feel like if you made him more outlandish to stand out more, then maybe he wouldn't work as well as the kind of just kind of piddling little bureaucrat with... Yeah. you know kind of with with his you know who just wants to make a lot of money he's like the worst you know the worst kind of person really in a lot of ways because you know the really crazy people are actually crazy but there's like a whole tier in the real world and everything of people who are just who will do anything for money and they just like figure out how to do it and they don't give a crap about anything um you know so uh, yeah i kind of like that but he i do think he's he's lost a little bit in the film i don't know if you guys felt the same way about that yeah, I, I, I would agree. <laughs> yeah. Koskov, fall, as far as villains go, I think uh, Koskov sort of falls on the weaker spectrum um, for me in the series. I just don't think he's that quite that memorable, at least with... Uh, and and he's he's just sort of too duplicitous to really be taken seriously as a, as a credible think, threat. Like he's, he's like a victim of having an actual complexity to his system. He's yeah. not just like, I'm going to, I have a bomb and I'm going to blow you all up. And it's like, we all remember that guy. Or admittedly, Goldfinger is probably, I guess, the, the gold standard of this. Well, uh, indeed, in terms yeah. of, yeah, in terms of like, I'm going to irradiate all the gold. So everyone has to use my gold, That's which right. honestly stands the test of time. It's just a fantastically outlandish scheme. Um, yeah. And one of the reasons Goldfinger will always be one of the greats. But yeah, you know, I, I like to say I like him as a villain. I want him to succeed more, but it's just the film. I don't know where the balance is supposed to be to get him out there. I don't think he does anything wrong. It's just, I don't know. It's it's just a lot of moving parts. Maybe here, maybe too many. It's yeah. It's it's very insanely convoluted. But uh, you know, we you make it through. And hey, let's not let's let's not get tied up in all this. Let's let's talk action, huh? I love this finale on the airfield. It's and so explodey. 
It's very explodey. Yeah, there's there's uh, Muhajadeen running through on horses, gunning people down with their AK-47s. Kara is on horseback firing a gun. Uh, there's a tractor that's tossing grenades at people. Bond is firing from an airplane, which he's ar- he's now since armed with a bomb because that's where the, all the opium is being stored for takeoff. Uh, the plane does take off, and Necros climbs aboard. And then he and Bond have this amazing mid-air fight sequence where they're both dangling on the net that's carrying all the opening opium packages. Uh, and in like in the wide shots, it's really two guys out hanging out of a back of a plane, which that's is, a crazy shot. <laughs> yeah, that and and then like the close-ups use like this really cool model beneath. Uh, like they're in the studio, of course, but like Dalton and uh, they're at least at least I would say fifteen feet in the air above like a, a matted model that looks like the mountains below. But it's a really it's a as far as like practical effects go, this is just an amazing sequence and. And uh, Steve, what do you? What do you you're, you're on board with this, right? I hope. Oh, a hundred percent. This is yeah. Again, like I love this movie because the the plot is there's a lot going on here, but mm-hmm. more so than most action films with kind of convoluted plots or really any Bond film. This this movie is very good at making you forget that you don't know why any of this is happening. And just the action Indeed. sequences are so over the top and ridiculous and fast paced that it doesn't allow you to stop and slow down and think like I didn't realize how confusing the plot to this movie was until it was over. And I was just like, wait, what the fuck? So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. At, at this point in the movie, it's pretty much just about like there is a bomb on the plane. But now Bond is also on the plane. Like originally he was going to blow the plane up, but he wasn't meant to be on the plane. And then he got on the plane. So that's like everything just flattens down to like bomb on plane. Man needs to get rid of Bond. Yeah, and you're like, and okay, sure. All you I get on board with that. Yeah. So it just it, it just sort of like it pulls a curtain across. So you're, you're not thinking about all the machinations going on behind all these things. You're just like, yeah, get rid of the fucking bomb. That's great. <laughs> yeah. It's very simple, and then I like how it all ties back to after they Necros gets a very good kill, where he's holding onto Bond's shoe, and Bond cuts the shoelaces off and sends him plummeting, plummeting to his death below. They then fly overhead, where they see the Russians are chasing off the Muhajadin. So then Bond throws the bomb down and blows up all the Russians uh, and saves the Taliban. Uh, it's a yeah, it's a very very uh, you know waste not want not. I have a oh I have an God. extra bomb. There's yeah. some tanks. Listen, let's let's do James this. Bond, Osama bin Laden. Name a more iconic duo. <laughs> Can't do it. <laughs> oh man. Well, for queen after, and country. Yeah. So we're not, we're almost done here with the film, but uh, we got one more heavy to take care of. Bond goes back to uh, Whitaker's mansion to take care of Jodan Baker. Uh, he's, uh, doing the battle, it's the Battle of Waterloo that he's doing, uh, but he, the thing is that he recreates battles and he does them his own way with the, with all the figurines on the table. Um, anyways, he and Bond have a, a fight, he's got, like, a bulletproof machine gun, uh, and almost bests Bond, but Bond blows him up with the, uh, the keychain device. I, I like this sequence, cause, um, James Bond... Shoot. Well, I was a little bit confused at first because uh, first Bond shoots him several times in the arm and sparks fly off, but then it turns out he's wearing body armor. So I guess I guess yeah. it wouldn't have mattered anyway. But then Bond shoots him directly at the shield, like he has his machine gun with the shield on it, and Bond just shoots the shield, 
and I just feel like that's like you clearly don't want to shoot that. There's a reason that's there. <laughs> it looks like an American so Gladiator's gun too. It's so <laughs> it should shoot. It should shoot t-shirts or something <laughs> like that's that's the setup and on then, it. And then, but yeah, there's like so he's got like the giant shield machine gun that he's blasting him with, and then at some point he has like a statue of a of like a guy with a cannon. Which he like he That's hits a button and shoots a fucking cannonball at James. Yeah, it's Bond. a real cannon. It's, so good. it's a real cannon primed to go whenever by remote control. I love that the whole room is remote operated. Like he opens all the and he opens the drawers enough force to knock Bond over. Yeah, it's a very strange setup, but the uh, the keychain plays another role. That's right. Bond kills him with a wolf whistle, and before he dies, Joe Don Baker like lets out a little giggle. With that like he's because he's telling Bond about how amazing his guns are, and then Bond gives a wolf whistle, and he's like, "Hey, all right," and then he gets killed. <laughs> yeah, this movie needs more Joe Don Baker. Yeah, JDB's yeah. like, he "Are shouldn't... we chasing tail tonight?" Boom, just blows up. It's great. <laughs> the, the wrong guy survived. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This should should have had like, of course, Joe Don Baker returns. Oh, he's yeah. in the Brosnan era. But uh, as a well, good guy, he's not playing a crazy dude anymore. Which is, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I like Joe Don Baker. Any Joe Don Baker I can get, I'm going to eat it up. But uh, clearly, right. he is his best as a maniacal villain. Yeah. I'd so, agree with that. So Bond is, uh, say, hey, the day's been saved. Uh, Koskov is, he, the thing about Koskov is that he doesn't even get a death. Uh, he's, it's implied that he's going to be killed because Pushkin says, send him home in the diplomatic bag. Which means just go execute him and then send him home in a body bag. Um, Bond uh, gets together with uh, Kara and uh, roll credits to the Pretenders. Uh, that's the Living Daylights, guys. What do you? How do you feel? How are you feeling? You charged? I mean, I am honestly. I just want to. I want to sit down and watch License to Kill right now. Yeah. Yes. I, I kind of feel the same. That is. That is the appropriate reaction because and License to Kill is so damn good. But yeah, God, I love this movie and I love. <sighs> Dalton's tenure so short yet so perfect um, gets a lot of things right and it's it's especially I find that when you marathon all the films like this is like I've done a couple times now it's when you get through seven mores which you know I love more and I enjoy his films plenty but uh, once you get to Dalton Dalton, Dalton is just it f- just feels so good it, it, you feel alive again when you watch it. It is a movie. real change of pace. Like it's, it is like a a whole other ball game. Yeah. Well, and, and this is this is like James Bond for the people, okay? Because there are so for many sure. James Bond movies where, whether I enjoy them or I don't enjoy them, and I think the Pierce Brosnan era largely is is very like I I, I don't they just kind of wash over me, and the Pierce Brosnan movies that came after this are very like James Bond movies made for people who really like James Bond and not really anyone else. And Mm -hmm. these movies, like you could pop this on for anyone, you know, this is the kind of movie where I always think about when I'm at home for the holidays or something like it's Thanksgiving. We've eaten dinner. I want to watch something, but like my dad and my uncle are in the room. What can I put on where I will be entertained and they will like not drive me insane and actually enjoy whatever we're watching. And this this falls squarely in that category. This is the everyman yeah. James Bond movie. Absolutely. The plot is who the fuck knows, but it doesn't matter. It does such a good yeah. job of foregrounding the action and just making you think about like how how does the these how do these action sequences serve 
whatever the plot is doing in the moment. Like, don't get caught up in the big picture. And it's it's just it's so good at doing that. And yeah, yeah. Dalton's he's the goat, man. He's the goat. I love I love him. He's my favorite Bond. Um, and this is Exhibit A. Uh, I I feel like I I can sit down and watch these movies anytime, but. You know, there's a reason that The Living Daylights and License to Kill are amongst my two top feud Bond films. I feel they get so much right, and I enjoy them uh, anytime that they're on. Uh, and, and hopefully by, you know, if you put it, if it's like you're looking for an everyman Bond and you put this on, hopefully this leads to more people uh, appreciate Timothy Dalton because I, I feel like he's sort of lately had a, a renaissance in, the, in how people feel about him. He's, you know, he wasn't really admired much uh, in the 80s, but uh, people have really turned around on him. So uh, we like to hear, if, you, if you're a fan, just shout at us. This is, uh, you know, we want to hear about from the Timothy Dalton heads. Um, all you Dalton fanatics out there. Uh, all you Dalton also, fans, I need, hit, wanna, hit us if up. If you are a Dalton fanatic, uh, can we? I, I need some information on his hair, particularly from from this movie. <laughs> uh, Timothy Dalton has been battling his his hairline for, I mean, decades, and he's he's been clinging on. But I'm pretty sure, like, he had to be wearing like a rug or something in this, or there was some sort of something was doctored. Uh, Timothy Dalton, I know you're listening to. I love you. I think you're amazing. I don't care what your hair is like in real life. It looks great here, but uh, it was Dim- with Timothy Dalton wearing a rug. That's what I want to know. I don't think he was, cause it, and there's a noticeable like he's he's very much upfront with his hairline, I guess you could say, because especially in License to Kill, it's noticeably more receded from this film. So I and and of course he does a lot of his own stunts, like when he's parachuting and the you know the hair's blowing around on his head. It just it doesn't feel like it's a rug. It it feels all real. I mean the rug. I mean Sean Connery, loud and proud, wore one. So you know he'd be in good company. But yeah, I wasn't yeah. really paying attention to the eyes. I only got as high as the eyes. I couldn't go higher. Well, that, that's Those his eyes. trick. That's how he does it. You fall into the, <laughs> oh, the deep you green, know what it is? blue ocean of his eyes. The magic. Yeah. It's the eyes and it's that dimple chin. Those mm. two things lock you in, and you're not looking at the hairline anymore. Yeah. That's my greatest uh, regret well, in life is that I don't have a dimple chin. I I have one, but I cover it with a beard, so I'm wondering if I should just shave that part of my chin to expose it. But uh, anyways. Go for mutton chops, man. It's a good look. Your wife will love it. Uh, I'll run that by her. Mutton um, chops and just get a job in a coffee shop, and you'll be you'll be good to go. Mutton chops at the coffee shop. That's the name of my third album. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, Jack, let's run some numbers, shall we? What uh, what sort of kills do you got for the Living Daylights? Okay, so I feel we could, we could run into a little bit of controversy here, but I I came up to thirteen kills. Okay, okay. unlucky number, but not Baker, a bad count. Baker's for a first dozen. Time. He's he's doing one extra to be sure. Exactly. Um. So this brings our total franchise run. T- uh, to 179 people that James Bond has pitilessly murdered in his tenure, um, but Dalton, this is this this is the most I think that any Bond has killed in a first time out because you know normally the transition they they normally when they bring in a new Bond they like tone it down a little bit you know yeah. bring it back but 13 that's that's a high that's a good good amount now admittedly I am counting a couple of things here so how do I get to 13 because he doesn't really kill a lot of people on screen here but uh, obviously we have the imposter or whatever in in Gibraltar on the exploding flying like if he wasn't gonna die from driving a jeep off a cliff the box of explosives does the job okay now I'm counting uh, in Afghanistan he takes off on the plane and he flies over a plane that is landing 
and they're terrified and they crash into Koskov's jeep and Koskov weirdly just walks away from that like that's fine that's cool and yeah. I'm not quite sure how that works okay I'm attributing those two deaths to James Bond for clear flagrant violation of any kind of airport security safety protocol didn't declare didn't have takeoff clearance nothing clearly his fault okay so those two they're on bond i'm sorry okay and then after that really he's got necros definitely killed him he's got whitaker definitely but here's the big number okay um he drops a bomb on two tanks now middly in the actual explosion there's only one tank but there are two in every other shot up to that point so you know that was just a little bit of doctoring because they blow up a whole bridge he doesn't just blow up two tanks he blows up like an entire bridge because that's just how we roll in this movie and i looked it up it's it should be a four-man crouper tank they have gunners up top these are fully staffed tanks that's eight people he killed that's how i'm arriving at numbers that's why bond killed 13 people in this movie so that's i just want complete you know uh yeah keep everything above board and okay I, th- I think we can uh yeah Sorry, and if I'll... and if you disagree with me, if if you disagree, let me know and I'll tell you why you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> now, as as for as for his amorous couplings in this film, I've got two. because uh, I'm counting the pre-credit sequence. Right. Because, you know, because definitely that happened. Okay. And then of course we have we have uh Mariam Diabo uh playing what's her name, Kara. So That's right. That's that's definitely number two, and uh, she was 27 at the time. Dalton's Ooh. 41. 41. Roger Moore's 59 by this point, so we, we've really toned things back, which means we come up to a, as I say, a comparatively respectable 14-year age difference, which is nowhere near our current record of 30 years between <laughs> Roger Moore and Melinda Havelock in uh, For Your Eyes Only. 30 yeah. years. That's like a, oh my god. Anyway, so that that's what we've got. It's the, the, the AIDS scare bond. Things have toned down a little bit. Just two. Even in his one outing, uh, George Lazenby got three and he even married one of them. So Dalton is definitely like the lowest energy bond thus far. Um, so do 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 we have box office numbers out of this? Hopefully, hopefully this film was richly rewarded at the box office for kicking ass. We do well. Let's see here. So back in 1987, this had a budget of 40 million dollars. It's roughly equivalent to 90 million dollars today. Uh, in the U.S. alone, it made back its budget with 51 mil of 191 million dollars, which is uh, 431 million dollars in today's amounts. Um, uh, beat handily beated or beated be beat a view to a kill by uh nearly a hundred million adjusted for today's standards so um yeah bond was wow. back and uh people people really like this one it seems so, so what you're saying is that if disney releases now it would be considered a flop that's r- that's right yeah this would be a major <laughs> flop uh bond would be uh shelved for the rest of our lives and uh yeah it's be a damn shame to never see another one but um, yeah, and uh, just a side note, no Oscar nominations for this film, but uh, you know, it's not why we watch these things anyways. Um, but uh, that about does it. That's The Living Daylights, 1987. Uh, Timothy Dalton, one out of two. Uh, let's uh, let's wrap things up. Steve, thank you very much for being such a gracious guest. We love having you on. Thanks um, for having me, guys. Where can other people find you, should you wish to be found? Uh, well, you can find me on twitter.com, at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C U F F, and I'll That's be there right. tweeting it completely inane nonsense. So, yeah. All right, thank you for that. And uh, Jack, where can the people find you? 
I I can also be found on Twitter. Unfortunately, I've made it my home, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> for some reason, and I can be found at Real Jack Eason. That's a uh, Real J A C K E A S O N, and I am also tweeting absolute nonsense there at all hours of the day. So just hit me up. That's fair. I'm also, uh, I seldom tweet, but I do do it, uh, usually about once or twice a day. Uh, you can find me at Jake Tropila, uh, T-R-O-P-I-L-A. Uh, but if you do hit me up on Twitter, I will reply to you. So uh, that is my promise to you, the listener. Uh, you can also hit up our general Twitter account. We're at Optimism Vaccine. Or if you have any uh, general questions or you don't use Twitter, you can also email us at OptimismVaccine.com. Really important, though, before this ends, we want you to go to the uh, go to wherever you rate uh, podcasts in your iTunes, your Apple uh, podcasts, or anywhere that you find your podcast, and uh, give us a five-star rating and tell us uh, why you love Timothy Dalton so much. We want to hear from it. Uh, well, I guess that about uh, does it for us on this ep. Did you have anything else you wanted to add, Jack or Steve? When are we going to get a James yours? Bond that vapes? Well, uh, there, I mean, we don't know what's happening in 25, good, right? Good, so. Yeah, good point. So, hey, we, we should mention that uh, this is the last Bond, Timothy Dalton, to uh, smoke a cigarette. Uh, Roger Moore famously smokes cigars, of course. But, uh, yeah, no Bond smokes after this one, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, yeah, good on you, Timothy. And uh, All right, well, that'll do it for this episode. Uh, we will see you next time. For your ears only, we'll return with License to Kill. License to Kill.